as an essence you describe your heart, to think about being with him forever in eternity, making much of him. Is that our deepest desire? Do we love Jesus? And it's a relief because I come to this passage, to Mark chapter 5, where we'll be digging in this morning. And, and I look at this passage and I say, I love Jesus. I am captivated with this man. The things that he does in this passage, <clears throat> excuse me, the things that he says, how he says it, I, I just look at this and say, man, I just want to know him. I, I want to be with him. I want to follow him around. I want to hear his words. I love Jesus. Um, we're going to read Mark 5, verses 18 to 43. And you'll find there's three uh, stories in Mark chapter 5. Three stories. And we're coming in at the very end of the first one. And then we're going to read the second and the third one. They kind of weave in and out of each other's paths. And the reason I do that is that I want us to focus on stories two and three, but I also want us to see some of the threads and some of the themes that are pulled through all three stories. Okay, so as we're reading through these verses, I want you to watch out for three things. Uh, theme number one is that Jesus cares a great deal less about crowds and multitudes and numbers than he does for the individuals in that crowd. Time after time, we're going to see him turning from the crowd and looking in on the individual person. Uh, theme number two is that when people come to the end of themselves, when they've spent all of their resources, everything they had, everything's been tried and failed, that Jesus is just getting started. It's just getting exciting for them. And then theme number three is that the curse of sin, the curse that started in Adam and has been spreading like an oil spill ever since, going out and out and out, that Jesus has come to stop that and to push back the curse of sin and death. So watch if you can see those things as we read uh, these verses together. Mark chapter 5, 18-43. And when he had gotten into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him. <clears throat> But said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion on you. <clears throat> Got my water bottle. Thanks. Uh, and he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boats to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one, behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, <coughs> and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and she suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. 
But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. He saw tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. <clears throat> but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. So right at the start of the second story of the passage, we are invited to look back at the first story, because we read in verse 21 that when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side. So we read that and we say, all right, well, where was he coming from? Where was Jesus before this? Well, it's on the other side, right? Uh, in, in the region of the Gadarenes. So you say, well, what was he doing there? What was Jesus uh, gone across the sea to do? Well, he went there to heal one guy. Just to heal one person. So at the end of chapter 4, there's a boat ride, a treacherous boat ride. Halfway through chapter 5, there's another boat ride. And all that Jesus does between those two points is that he heals one guy. What else did he do? You read it through, oh, just one guy. According to, to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, all he does here is that he heals one guy. So they say, well, he must have been an important guy, right? He must have been a great man. He must have been worthwhile going after, right? They say, well, you know, by, by our measurements, probably not. This guy was cast aside. He was thought very little of. He wasn't rich, he wasn't influential, he wasn't particularly wise, and, and, and although his behavior was pretty dramatic, it's likely that he wasn't causing all that much trouble to all that many people, right? He, he's out in the mountains, he's out among the tombs, and even if he is causing trouble, this is self-limited, right? It's only a matter of time until this problem fixes itself. This guy's cutting himself, he's bleeding, he's not looking after the wounds, this is days before antibiotics. You know, it's only a matter of time before this guy gets sick and dies. This problem's going to go away. And so if you were counseling Jesus, which believe me, he doesn't need, but if you were, you would be justified maybe and say, you know, Jesus, there's crowds over here. You're, you're, you're getting traction over here. That, that's one guy. You can't save them all. I mean, in the big scheme of things, does this guy, does it really matter all that much? There's people who have needs here. But this guy matters to Jesus, right? And so Jesus gets into a boat, and he sails into a storm, and the waves are crashing against the boat, and the wind is buffeting it, and these disciples, who are seasoned fishermen, they think they're going to die. And then they make landfall, he heals this guy, he gets run out of town, gets back on the boat, comes back again, and again, according to every other account of the story, all he does is that he heals 
this one guy. And that's the pattern of this, of this passage. Look in verse 22, or 21, rather. A great multitude is coming to him, and behold, one. Right away, Mark shifts our attention back from the multitude to the one. Jesus shifts his attention from the multitude to the one. In verse 31, the disciples say to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? The, the multitude is surrounding him, and he's looking for the one. In verse 37, Jesus is on his way to do one of the greatest miracles that this world has ever seen. He's going to raise a young girl to life again, and he permits no one to follow him, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And by the way, don't talk to anybody. Verse 43, don't talk to anybody about this. Don't, don't tell anyone. He's just going to heal this little girl. And I want us to, to just, before we, we dig into some of the, the, the nuts and bolts of this passage, to just sit and bask under that for a minute. A lot of us have an easier time accepting, for God so loved the world, the collective, than the reality that this morning, he's looking in this crowd to individual people, and that he loves you. He has affection for you. He wants you. It gets a little bit uncomfortable when you start to make it personal. And if you're anything like me, you kind of try to screw it up. Remember that. I mean, God can love the world. He can love the, the, the nameless masses. He can love maybe children, adults, you know, let them come to him. They, they deserve his love. Maybe great men and great women, people who have done stuff to earn his love and his affection. He can love them. But me? Man, if you just knew what I had done, you wouldn't be saying that. But you know, Jesus knows everything that you've done. And he still loves you. And, and time after time, we see this pattern of him turning from the masses to the individual person. And he would go through a storm and back in order for this guy to be saved. And he would go to the cross and back, into the grave and back, and into God's wrath and back in order to have you, in order to, to save you. Sometimes what happens is that we let our opinions of ourselves change our understanding of God's feelings for us. Instead of letting God's feelings for us, as expressed in his word, transform our opinions of ourselves. God loves you. And in this, this crowd this morning, I, I hope we can all feel that, that this isn't for the church, although it is. But that this is for you, that God's talking for you, to, to you. He's not something for you this morning. Now, it doesn't end there, because then Jesus says this to this man in verse 19. We read it. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to the Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And so, just because Jesus would go to the cross and back for you, doesn't mean that it's all about you. You know what I'm saying? It's all about Him. It's all about His glory. And He's sending us out now to proclaim the things, the good things that the Lord has done for us and how He has had compassion on you. If you've tasted God's goodness and you've tasted His compassion, then we go out and we tell folks so that other people will hear and marvel at the things that God has done for us. All right. So, He goes to the one, He's back now, and it says that a great multitude, in verse 21, gathered to Him. And he was by the sea. And so again, here with Jesus, you're getting excited again. Like, all right, we're getting traction. But this, this thing, it started to move again. Here's, here's the crowd. So now here's what we'll do, Jesus. We're going we're gonna to send them home uh, to grab sticks or swords or whatever they have. 
Um, and if you know, heal a couple more people, maybe some influential people, some captains, some guards, and you can set them over before you. Then we're going to storm Rome. We're going to go to Rome. We're going to take this land back from Israel for the glory of God. We're going to get all Old Testament and slay our thousands and tens of thousands for, for Israel, right? But not Jesus. Jesus, again, as we say, he shifts his attention like Mark does to this one. The very next verse says, Behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came. Jairus by name. I love how personal it is. It's Jairus by name. Again, he's turned to that individual person. And I wonder, as he's described as a ruler of the synagogue, I wonder if up until now, Jairus has been with the rest of the synagogue and standing against Jesus and opposing the works of Jesus. Right? Uh, Jesus was a threat to Jairus. Jesus was a threat to his status and to his position and to the respect and his livelihood. Jairus, uh, with the rest of the synagogue, uh, would have looked at Jesus and said, you know, thanks, thanks for what you got, but you know, we're, we're getting along just fine. Okay? Our religion, our philosophies, it's getting us through our day-to-day -day just fine. We don't need what you've got, Jesus. Just, just back off. But it's interesting that when, when Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue, not was a ruler of the synagogue, uh, comes to, to his daughter's illness and to issues of life and death and, and, and worry about death that he's got no one else to turn to. He's got to come to Jesus. That his, his philosophies and his religion and his way of life, it got him through his day-to-day -day for the most part. It, it kind of helped him to structure his life, but when it came to matters of life and death, it was bankrupt. It had nothing to offer. And how often do we find that? With, with the people who turn to the philosophies of this age and then the belief systems of this age, that it might help them to structure their life, it might help them to deal with some of that anxiety and that brokenness, and it might help them to numb and put some, some salve on it. But then when it comes to matters of life and death, Dan, Dan referenced the, our, our, my patient Ted, when it comes to matters of life and death, those philosophies were bankrupt. We have to turn to Jesus for those things. Um, my, my sister, uh, who was raised in the same house that I was in a Christian home, uh, going to Bible camp, going to Sunday school, uh, hearing the Bible stories, and, and now she would, she would be a very vocal, uh, aggressive <coughs> atheist, um, sadly, for the last four or five years. And about two or three years ago, she posted on, on Facebook, uh, and I don't think she realized how profound a question it was. She, she posted, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically, does anybody have any good readings for a secular funeral? Question mark. She just threw it up there. I thought, that is more profound than she probably knows. So here's this person who has now disavowed the existence of God, who's being asked to speak at a funeral or to share something at a funeral of somebody else who's disavowed God, and she's got nothing. She's empty-handed. She's throwing it up to the internet. Anybody have any good readings? Anybody? Something to say? I got nothing. You know, so confident in the day-to-day, -day, so confident in the philosophies that are taking her through this lifetime. But when it comes to matters of life and death, uh, it's empty. And it was empty for Jairus too. He had to turn to Jesus. And now notice the posture that he takes. Behold, the ruler of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And the first thing that we read is that he saw him. That he, that he saw Jesus. And I think it's implied from the reading of this passage that he saw Jesus because he was searching. He'd gone out to look for Jesus. I don't think it, it follows that, G, that this guy, Jairus, <clears throat> just happened to be out and about, and he came upon Jesus. And I say that for, for three reasons. One is that I, I don't think that anything 
except a desperate search for a cure, could tear a loving father away from the bedside of his very sick daughter, his daughter who was close to death. I don't think that would happen. I don't think he was just out and out. Secondly, I think we see it from the verse, um, from verse 35, where the people from his household come to him, and they seem to know what he was about. Because um, they say, don't bother the teacher any longer. So there seems to be an understanding that Jairus had gone out, and that he was looking for the teacher to come to heal his daughter. Because when his daughter died, they, they, they went to find him and told him to stop bothering the master any longer, that the child was dead. And I think we see it too, just from the posture that he takes. This is someone, as you read this passage, who is uh, desperately in love with his daughter, who really, really wants and needs what Jesus is offering, who's confident that he's going to find it in Jesus. And even more than that, and hear me on this, who's confident that he could find it in no one else. Right? That, that, there's a distinction there. He's confident that Jesus has what he needs, and he's confident that no one else does. Because he comes to him, and, and then we see he falls at his feet. He's, he's humble. He's broken. You'll notice that it's Mark and not Jairus who tells us that, that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, right? He doesn't come to Jesus as an equal. He doesn't come to Jesus and drop his resume and say, hey, you got to come and help me because of who I am and all the things that I've done. And there's no mention of a reward or payment if, if Jesus would come and do this thing for him. This is someone who comes broken for his daughter and desperate for Jesus, the master, to come into his home to bring about healing, to bring about a miracle. And that's how we have to approach Jesus too. It's not by the works of righteousness which we have done that he saves us. It's according to his mercy that he saves us. Uh, Romans tells us that God is no respecter of persons, which means that it doesn't matter if you are a woman dragging yourself through the dirt, or you're a man with a, an evil spirit, or you're Jairus of the synagogue. That, that we come to Jesus broken, with nothing of ourselves, with nothing of who we are, with nothing that we bring to the table, no offer of payment or, or, or reward, just desperate for what Jesus has, desperate for what nobody else does. And then we read this, that he begged him earnestly. Anyone who, who likes the King James, um, this is translated, he besought him much. Kind of like that. He comes to Jesus and he besought him much. Other translations say that he invited them or that he prayed. And what a picture this is for us of what our prayer life should look like, right? If, if you can, I don't know if you've got to close your eyes or whatever, but if you could get into your mind the picture of this father, if you've had kids who've been sick, some of you have, just the worry and the concern that he would have felt, how heartbroken he would have been for what was coming. And then his, his understanding that Jesus could do something about this and falling at his feet, if you could just get into your mind that picture of him begging earnestly, not just asking him, just asking, Jesus, please, you gotta come, my daughter, she's sick. My, my loved daughter, she's 12 years old, you gotta come, I know you can do it. He's begging him much. This is the kind of prayer that we need to offer up to the Lord when it comes to our own souls, when it comes to our families, when it comes to our church, our community. This is the picture of prayer that we're given scripturally. Um, those of you who have young kids, do you know what begging it earnestly looks like, right? Yeah? Daddy, Daddy, please, please, can I have it? Because I really want it, and I haven't had it for such a long time, and you said that I have it, and I really want it now, do you think I can have it now? Can I have that thing that I want? Please, Jesus. I want to have it. 
begging earnestly looks like, and that's what scriptural prayer looks like. That's what we're called to again and again in scripture. It's praying without ceasing. Uh, Ephesians 6, praying always with all prayers and supplications in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Uh, Paul describes his prayer life this way in Philippians 1 4, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Jesus' example in Luke chapter 6, he goes up into the mountain and he continues day and night in prayers to God. When does Again, no hands, but when have you prayed for 20 consecutive minutes before? Maybe, maybe more of you here than, than, than me, right? When was the last time that we prayed an hour, two hours, through the night, continuing in prayer to God? This is not just, hey, God, this is, this is my list, this, 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 and this. Jesus name, amen. And you walk away. This is, this is a labor. This is a work that, that you do. Uh, the, the two parables that Jesus gives us, um, one of them is the persistent widow who's just nagging the judge, asking him again and again, and we're told, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? And the other one is the friend who's knocking on the door, who needs bread. And his friend's already in bed, but he, he's got confidence in his character. He's got confidence in his goodness. He's going to knock and knock because he knows that his friend is going to delight to give those good things to him. And he persists and persists. And because of this persistence, we read, the friend will rise and give him what he needs. This persistence in prayer, this desperation in prayer, this confidence in God in prayer, it, it, it's annoying when it's your kids, and sometimes we need to teach them to ask once and then to be patient for the answer. But it's precisely what we're invited into when it comes to God. Uh, that kind of prayer expresses our dependence on him. Right? We don't just, we don't just say the prayer and then go out and fix it ourselves. <coughs> Or try to fix it ourselves. That, that kind of prayer expresses our confidence in the character of God, who's a good father, who knows how to give good gifts to his children. And it expresses our confidence, like Jairus, that God has what we need. That he can come to on the needs that we need to see fulfilled, and that nobody else can. It's not a checklist. It's not a, a medicine-machine message. It's not a, a magical incantation or a certain combination of words that unlocks the the, the grace of God, the fault of God's mercy. It's the labor of a desperate heart. It's the work of a Christian to wrestle with God over these things, to pray. And, and, and Jesus doesn't answer Jairus' prayer here because of the words that he said or even the posture that he took. He answers Jairus' prayer because of the faith that underlies it. It's the faith that drove Jairus to respond in that way. Right? Can you imagine if Jairus had come to Jesus and had been kind of casual about it. Jesus, hey, yeah, over here, yeah. Hey, uh, you know, if you, if you get minutes and time space, you could pop by the house and I'm home most nights after five. If you could, if you could drop in and my, my daughter's not so long, if you know, try something, that'd be great. Okay. And you saw Jairus responding in that way, you would say, either his daughter's not all that sick, uh, or he's got maybe other arms in the fire, right? He's got other options that he's looking into, he's got plans. Yeah, B, C, D, maybe Jesus is E, F, or G, you know. Um, or, he's really not that confident that Jesus can do this. He doesn't really believe, but that's not his posture. <clears throat> Jairus is, is desperate. He goes out and he searches for Jesus, and he sees Jesus, and he falls at his feet, and he's begging, and he's earnest, because he loves his daughter. And he so desperately wants to see her healed. And, and he's so convinced in his heart that Jesus can do it, 
and that no one else can. This is his only hope. And so let us pray that way. Let's pray that way when it comes to our own souls, when it comes to our, our sin and our sanctification and our justification. Let's pray like it's life and death, because it is. But let's labor with God. When we pray for our church and our community, when, when, when it's our, our prayer meetings, when it's our own personal quiet time, what do our prayer lives look like? Does it look like Jairus at Jesus' feet? Or does it look like the, the second sort of flippant, casual Jairus? And, and sometimes I fear for myself that I'm frustrated with the lack of response to my prayers because the quality of my prayers betrays the fact that I don't really believe. And I don't really have faith that Jesus can do this thing. So let's pray like Jairus. And so Jairus does. He prays like Jairus. And, and Jesus goes with him. And they start to, to, to go together. And again, they find a multitude pressing in. And so we're, we read this description that a certain woman has a flow of blood for 12 years. So this woman is in trouble, right? Bleeding for 12 years. Um, we're, we're told that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So life, blood go together. She's losing her blood. She's losing her life. She's, her life is in danger. Uh, and she's been bleeding for 12 years. And so I'm going to get medical for a second, and, uh, and I'm going to get even more so for a second. This is like a primer, okay? I'm just going to be uncomfortable. But this woman, she's, she's bleeding. So she's losing red blood cells. Uh, but in the process, she's also losing iron, right? And iron is a building block for red blood cells. So now, not only is she losing the red blood cells, the stuff that carries oxygen to your tissues, um, but she's losing the ability to replace the blood that she is losing, and then even the blood cells that she's making, because of her low iron, is of a poor quality. So, so she's in trouble. She's not, she's not getting oxygen to her tissues, which means that she's lightheaded, she's fatigued, heart pounding in her chest, she's, she's uh, maybe getting some cramps in her legs, she's, her tissues are starving for, for, for oxygen. Um, in extreme cases, this leads to heart attacks, this leads to organ failure, this leads to death. And so this woman is in trouble. She was touched. Right? She's going to die. So what did she do? She, she suffered many things from many physicians. Hard to believe that it's true. <laughs> she suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather she grew worse. And isn't that what we find when, when we reach out to other things other than God to fix our deepest issues? Have you seen that other people kind of walking in that path as well? That, that at the end of the day, after all this searching for other things, they find themselves impoverished and empty of their resources, whether that's energy, money, whatever, and, and she found herself worse rather than better. She had suffered many things, and, and so her situations become more and more hopeless. She's tried everything that she can think of. She's tried everything that she had money for. She's only getting worse. And there's a progression in the three stories, right? That things are getting more and more hopeless. For, for the, the gentleman among the tombs, in verse 3, we read that nobody could bind him, even with chains. This hopeless. Couldn't contain this. Nothing that could be better for him. For this woman here, she had spent all that she had, and she grew no better. In fact, she was getting worse. And then with Jairus' daughter, the most hopeless situation imaginable, right? They come to him, and they, they actually say, give up, basically. Stop bothering him. It's hopeless now. She's dead. So we see this, this Jesus is being, in some ways, put to a test. Hopeless situation. Even more hopeless situation. Okay, utterly hopeless situation. What will Jesus do? Can Jesus come through in this situation? 
And that takes us to our second theme, which is that when people come to the end of themselves, when everything has been tried and failed, that Jesus is just getting started. It's just getting exciting for him. So, so why is that? Why is it that Jesus can be victorious where everything else fails? I want to turn to three passages. It's going to be like Bible triumph. Okay, three passages. And I want you to stay with me because there's, there's, some, there's a truth about Jesus that's going to start to, to rise to the surface as we read these verses. So Leviticus 15, third uh, book in your Bible, Leviticus 15, verse 25, says this. If a woman, man, I apologize. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. This is what we're told. This is a big deal in that day. She's unclean. This means she doesn't go out in public. She, she can't touch anything. She can't go into the temple. She can't worship. Can't touch anything. Well, look what it says. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean, as the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. So this is saying something to us. And I, and I wouldn't be doing this if, if it wasn't going to add significantly to our understanding of Jesus. The, the, the writer of Moses, writing Leviticus, the law given to them by God, is teaching them that uncleanness makes other things unclean. That dirt dirties, that contamination contaminates, that things spread in that way. Okay, what's the next passage? Haggai 2.12, one of the minor prophets. You can just listen. Uh, if one carries, so he's going to ask a question. If one carries holy meat, clean meat, something that's holy, that's pure, in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. And so he's, he's asking a question here. He's saying, okay, so, so dirt dirties, the contamination contaminates. Does it work in the other direction? What if something's really, really clean? What if something's really, really holy? Does this thing flow in both directions? If there's holy meat and it touches something, will that thing be made holy because of that contact? The priest says, no. It's not how it works. And then he says, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these things, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So now he has some directionality to this moral spread, to this moral contamination. Contamination contaminates. Back to our passage, verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, so, so ask yourself, is this what's being described in the other passages? She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Immediately, the fountain of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? So here's this woman, uh, leaving beyond her customary time frame, unclean. Uh, for 12 years, she's not only been dying a slow death, but she's been ostracized and segregated and quarantined from society. She's not going out. She can't touch anybody. She can't be touched. She hasn't been able to look after her kids. She hasn't been able to be intimate with her husband. She hasn't been able to go into the temple to worship. And, and we were asked the question, does her con 
contamination? Does that, does that spread? Does that go out? And we've been given the answer that yes, it does spread. Well, what about the other way, the other direction? Does the cleanness you know, engulf the uncleanness? And we can ask mothers this question. You know, when has the clean room in your house spread out and engulf the unclean room? <laughs> right? It doesn't happen. We know this intuitively. Uh, when have your kids walked through your clean floors with their muddy boots and the cleanliness of your floors has come up and just cleaned their shoes? It doesn't happen, right? Their boots are dirty and the, and the floors are dirty too. And this is the spiritual reality. And we have all these visible reminders of the spiritual reality. Romans 5 tells us that through one man's sin, through Adam's sin, uh, or rather through Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. And so since Adam's original sin, this thing's been spreading like an oil slave, contaminating others, the, the, the sins of the father visited on their children. No wonder that this woman comes to Jesus trembling and fearful in this Jewish context that knew well the words of Leviticus and knew well the words of Haggai. She had touched Jesus. In her uncleanness. And who knows how many others in the crowd that she had touched. Did she make Jesus unclean? No. Right? What we find happening in this passage is that for the first time in history, the, the, this spread has stopped. That her uncleanliness doesn't spread into Jesus and make him unclean. His power goes into her and brings healing and, and holiness where there was brokenness and uncleanness. Jesus has come to stop the curse and to push back on it. And that's why we have to trust in Jesus. Only he can do it. He's of a different sort. He's come to stop the curse and to push it back. And Romans 5 continues to say, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, I, I don't know many of you. Um, I don't know how the, the curse of sin and death has touched you. Um, I don't know the effect that it's had on your family. I don't know how the effect of the curse still has a hold of your heart. I, I don't know the scars that it's left on your body. I don't know the scars that it's left on your souls. I don't know the scars that it's left on the people that you love and that you care about. But what I can see from this passage is that sin and death and darkness and the curse have got nothing on Jesus. Nothing on Jesus. That, that his light is so bright that it invades the darkest places. That his goodness is so good that it invades all badness. That his holiness is so holy that it invades uncleanness and it brings healing and holiness where there was brokenness and where there was the curse. <clears throat> and that's why we have to trust in him. He's of a different sort. Well, how far can he take this? Just as we're closing, uh, he can cast demons out of demons. That's man. He can touch uh, a woman with, who is unclean and have his power into her and bring about healing. But how far can he take it? Well, what about the most hopeless situation of all? What about the most unclean situation of all? What about when somebody dies? That's the, the story that this chapter closes on. And, and so we find that with Jesus delayed uh, by this woman, the attention to the one, that, that Jairus' daughter, she dies. And, and we find that that limits, or it betrays rather the limits of Jairus' faith, that people come to him and they say, no, don't, don't 
and don't bother the, the teacher any longer. Your, your daughter has died. And we find Jesus turning to her uh, when he hears that, uh, as though he, he's got to you know, stop jars before he falls apart altogether. And he says, don't be afraid. Only believe. Jesus, through these horrible circumstances, was calling Jairus into a deeper faith, a closer faith. Jairus had faith, right? He believed that Jesus could heal his daughter, that's faith. But there was a limit to his faith. Uh, kind of like Mary and Martha when Lazarus dies, you know, they had faith. Lord, if you had been here, you could have made me well. That's faith. But, but Jesus was calling them into closer faith. Jesus is not only the Lord over disease and illness, he's the Lord over death. He is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus, because of this delay, because of this horrible circumstance that came into Jairus' life, was going to show that to him in a tangible way that he was never going to forget. That Jesus, rather, is Lord over death. So his delay uh, reveals the limits of Jairus' faith. He's going to call into deeper faith. It also displays the faithlessness of the crowd who are mourning. It's a tumult. They're mourning like those who have no hope. And so Jesus puts them out. He permits none of them to follow. And it's an example that we find in Scripture again and again is that faith brings about blessing and intimacy with God. And that, that faithlessness results in a curse. They're, they're put out. They don't get to witness this thing. And finally, his, uh, her death, rather, raises the risks to Jesus. You, you don't touch a dead body if you're a Jew. You don't, you don't do that. That, that the uncleanness of the, the, the corpse would enter into him. But what does he do? First, he states that this child is sleeping. Again, that's a high-risk statement to make. You're not going to come through. Right? The, the stakes are high at this point. It's not, it's not that. It's just, she's just sleeping. And then he grabs her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha Kulani, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. He didn't have to touch her hand, but he did. He touched her hand. And he's not going to do this power just because he healed the woman before. His power enters into this little girl, and she rises up obediently, touches her hand, this little girl, in her deathbed. And again, I don't know all of you here, I don't know what state you're in, but I suspect that there are little boys and little girls in this room, so to speak, people that are just broken, that, that just desperately need the hand of the Savior in your hand, drawing you up out of your deathbed, touching you. Uh, in a, in a time of, of hopelessness, touching you in a place of uncleanness and raising you up into health and wellness and life to thrive. <clears throat> Jesus has come to push back the curse, not for the crowds, not just for the world, although he's going to set all things right. He's come to, to push back the curse in your life. He's come to shine light in the dark places of your heart. He's come for people who, who have faith in him. So, so fall at his feet and beg him earnestly for what only he can give and what you will find in nobody else. Only Jesus can do this thing. And for those of us who have been risen to life, who have experienced the hand of the Savior drawing you out of your deathbed, I want you to notice that Talitha was raised healthy. It says that he raised her and then commanded her that she would be given something to eat. And if you've ever been sick or unwell, you'll know that your appetite is the last thing. Right? That even after the, the fever passes or the illness, the, the infection passes, your appetite is the last thing to come back. But that's not how it is when Jesus heals. She's raised up in life and she must be given something to eat. God has not intended for us to go through this life in a low-grade fever. He's intended us to thrive. 
to be fruitful, to abide in Him, to be branches that bear much fruit for His kingdom. He's raised us up into help and to life. And so for all of us here, let's trust in Jesus to give what only He can give us, to bring us into life, but then to bring us into a place of health and thriving for His glory and for the blessing of His, his church and His temple. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for, for Jesus. We're just so thankful for this one who is so 